Hello. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all this morning. Uh, my name is Nate. I'm a community group leader with the South Monday Community Group. And I'm going to be walking us through Mark 8 this morning for our teaching as we continue in our series through Mark. And I wanted to start this off by having us all consider a question together that I think will help us engage with the chapter. And that question, it'll be up there, is what characteristics do you typically think of when you think of a hero of a story? I like actually want you to think about it. I'll give you like 10 seconds. Think in your brain. Okay, okay. Hopefully some things came to mind as you thought about that. And as I thought about it, I was realizing a lot of times as we consider heroes, we consider them to be strong or charismatic. Uh, most of the time we associate them with having some kind of superpowers like Captain America, Superman. Um, there are people who are powerful enough to defeat their enemies and people who gain a following through like charm or through strength. And actually, as I was thinking about this, the song Zero to Hero from Hercules came to mind, if you guys remember that. And it, like the song's playing and there's this montage of Hercules defeating bad guy after bad guy using his supernatural strength, like classic hero. So that's a big thing, but I think we often consider heroes also as people that are willing to make sacrifices. But usually the sacrifices that they make come as like a concession, as something went wrong in their plan and now they need to sacrifice to defeat the bad guy. But like their master plan going in all along wasn't that they were gonna make these sacrifices to win. It was something went wrong, here they are. And I wanna bring this up because I think we can see that Jesus is the hero of the Bible. And throughout Mark in chapter 8, we get to see what kind of hero Jesus is. And we've seen throughout our sermon series so far who Jesus is and what it looks like to believe him. We've seen that Jesus is the Messiah. We've seen that the things Jesus says are jarring and they're controversial. And we've seen different ways that we should respond to Jesus. And in this chapter of Mark, we're going to once again see that Jesus is the Messiah but on top of that, we're going to learn what kind of Messiah Jesus is and what it means to follow him. We're going to see that Jesus is the hero of this story, but he isn't the kind of hero who defeats his enemies through strength and overpowers them. He honestly isn't even the type of hero who has the enemies that people would maybe expect him to have. But instead, Jesus' plan all along was to take the way of weakness and humility and eventually bearing the ultimate pain and shame of sacrificing himself on the cross. So we see Jesus isn't the hero that the disciples expect, and he might not be the one that we expect either. But to follow him, we must be willing to let go of all of our preconceived expectations and values for his sake. So as we get into it, we're going to start by reading Mark 8, 1 through 10, and it will be up on the screen if you want to follow along, if you want to take out your Bible. And it starts with, In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. 
and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with the disciples and went up to the district of Dalmanutha. So we've seen up to this point in Mark that Jesus has proved himself to be the Messiah over and over again, and this is another story where we get to see Jesus proving that. We see that Jesus multiplies seven loaves of bread to feed 4,000 people, which is crazy in itself. Like, seven loaves of bread probably won't be enough to feed the, like, however many people are in this room. There's not even close to 4,000. So it's wild that Jesus is able to do this. But it's also interesting to note in this story that Jesus feeds the people in a desolate place, is what it says. And this wording of a desolate place brings to mind the story of Israel in the wilderness after they escaped from Egypt in the Old Testament. If you're not familiar with that story in the Old Testament, Israel was enslaved in Egypt, and God freed them to bring them to a promised land. But before they got there, Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They were in the wilderness, and they didn't have food, yet God miraculously provided them with manna, which is like a flaky food that tasted like wafers for them to eat. And we see a parallel where Jesus is doing the same thing here. There are people in the wilderness, and they're without food, and he miraculously provides them with food. And this creates this parallel where the God who saved Israel from Egypt in the Old Testament and provided them with food in the wilderness It's paralleled with Jesus, who teaches about salvation, is providing a way for people to be saved, but he also provides bread for the crowds. So we see that it's showing that Jesus has come to save Israel as God saved them in the exodus from Egypt. So Jesus is providing further evidence that he's the Messiah sent from God here to enact a new exodus. And an interesting thing here is that it's pretty likely that the crowd that Jesus was feeding is a Gentile crowd. The Gentiles were basically like any non-Jewish people, and in the mind of a lot of Jews, they were the enemies of the Messiah. They would have been the enemies of Jesus. But instead of crushing them, like maybe someone would expect, Jesus has compassion on the Gentiles. He feeds them as God fed Israel in the Old Testament. And this can help to clue us in that Jesus has not only come for the people of Israel, but he's come to provide a way of salvation for all people, regardless of their nationality, of where they're from. So we see that at the beginning of Mark, and then the chapter continues on in Mark 8, verses 11 through 13, and Jesus has an encounter with the Pharisees, and I'll read that for us. So it says, The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. So something else we've seen throughout Mark is that Jesus has had multiple encounters with these people called the Pharisees. And in short, the Pharisees are the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus's day. They followed a very strict form of oral traditions to maintain their relationship with God. And we see Jesus confronted by these people once again here in this chapter. And we see that they demand a sign from Jesus to prove that he is truly sent by God. And Jesus responds pretty harshly to them. He refuses the request, and then just gets in a boat and leaves them behind. And honestly, the first time that I read this, I was like, wow, this seems really harsh of Jesus. Like, what is happening? I was like, it's like if I were to go and see a doctor that said he could cure me of a disease, and I asked this guy, like, hey, can you prove your credentials by, like, showing me your diploma or something like that? And he responded, why do these patients seek proof? No proof will be given to them. And then he just, like, refused to treat me, walked out of the room, and I'm just like, oh, 
okay, cool. I would be very confused. I would think it was a little crazy and very harsh for the guy to respond that way. But as I looked more closely at this story, I think I was able to see that that's not quite what was happening, actually. Because first of all, Jesus says that no sign will be given when he actually just did a sign, like right before this. Like, he just fed 4,000 people. And if that's not a sign, I don't really know what is. You may be thinking, okay, the Pharisees weren't there. Fair enough, maybe they weren't. But while they might not have been there, surely they've heard of the other time when Jesus fed 5,000 people with 12 loaves of bread, or one of the times that he healed someone that had an incurable disease. Like, Jesus has been doing signs for basically eight chapters at this point. So the problem isn't so much that Jesus refuses to give signs, but instead the problem is the Pharisees' hardness of heart. It seemed that there's nothing that Jesus could do that would convince the Pharisees that he is the Messiah sent from God. They had specific expectations for what the Messiah would be like and how he would act, and Jesus didn't really meet those expectations. In their mind, the Messiah wouldn't be healing people on Sabbath days. He wouldn't be eating with tax collectors and with sinners. But so in the Pharisees' arrogance and their pride, they refuse to recognize Jesus for who he is no matter what happens. And unfortunately, the attitude that the Pharisees have here reminds me of a little bit of how I approached a conversation that I had with Jesse Jones a couple of months ago. Um, have you guys ever heard of shipping container homes? They're like... The, There'll be a picture up there of what they are if you've never heard of them. Basically, it's instead of building a normal house, people will put a shipping container on a piece of land and just like turn it into a home. They'll add all the stuff they need for it to be a home. And I was talking to Jessie about this, and she was trying to tell me that she thought it would be a good idea for her at some point in her life to try to build a shipping container home instead of buying a normal house because it would be more cost effective and all these reasons that she gave. And I immediately thought it was a terrible idea. I was like... There's nothing you could say that would make me think this is a good idea. As we kept talking about it, I kept trying to make her prove her point. We looked up all these things on Google, but realistically, nothing she could have said would have convinced me that it was a good idea for her, her to do this. And I think looking back on that, I honestly was acting like a bit of a Pharisee in that moment. I was being prideful. My heart was hardened towards Jesse. Like, I would not change my mind no matter what she said. And I know that this is kind of like a silly example. It's not that important, but... I would bet that we all have moments where we refuse to even consider changing our mind about something. And this is the exact attitude that causes Jesus to respond harshly to the Pharisees in this story. And then we see that right after this encounter, Jesus warns the disciples to beware the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod in Mark eight fourteen through 20. So I'll go ahead and read those verses for us now. So it says there, Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And so what does Jesus mean here when he talks about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? 
So we just saw that the Pharisees are these arrogant and proud people. So then what about Herod? Who's that guy? So Herod, in short, was a Jew who had been appointed as the ruler of Judea, so the country, by Rome. And basically any time we encounter this guy in the biblical story, we see him acting pridefully and doing whatever he wants to do and anything he can to maintain his power. So the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod seems to be a pride that can't imagine something being different from what they expect, from what they want. And the disciples clearly have no idea what Jesus means here because they immediately start talking about how they have no bread with them and they're afraid of not having anything to eat. Literally right after Jesus had fed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. So the disciples don't get the point that Jesus is making I think it's important that as we read this, we don't miss it, that we understand what Jesus is trying to teach. What we see here is that people must be willing to let go of their expectations and to humbly follow Jesus. Jesus is warning against pride that refuses to humbly submit to him and accept Jesus for who he is, and the disciples don't understand that. And the next story in Mark is actually related to that idea, though it might not totally seem like it at first read. So the next story is in Mark 8, 22 through 26. And it says there, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. So Jesus' healing of this man is pretty unique. He lays his hands on him once, and the man can see partially. And then Jesus lays his hands on him again, and the man is able to see perfectly. And I don't think that this like two-stage healing happens because of some deficiency in Jesus, that Jesus isn't powerful enough to heal this guy. Like, Jesus is perfect. He's all-powerful could have healed him in one try if you wanted to. But I think this interaction does communicate two ideas to us. One is that it once again shows Jesus' authority as the Messiah sent from God. He's able to heal the blind, and that's incredible and amazing that Jesus is able to do that. I think the second thing it does is it reveals to us how the disciples see Jesus. And this might seem a little weird, but bear with me and I'll explain what I mean there. I don't think that Mark, who is the author of this book, put the story of the blind man here on accident. The first time I read it, I was like, I don't know why this is here, what it has to do with anything. But I think it's on purpose. And in the next part of the chapter, we're going to see that the disciples understand that Jesus is the Messiah, but they don't yet understand that Jesus is a suffering Messiah and that he's going to die on the cross. So by putting this story here, I think Mark is creating a metaphor where just as the blind man could only see in part at first, he just saw blurry trees, so too the disciples are only able to see in part right now. They know that Jesus is the Messiah, they can accept that and see that, but they don't yet know what kind of Messiah Jesus will be. But just as the blind man comes to see clearly, so too the disciples will come to see clearly what kind of Messiah Jesus is. And while they might reject it at first, eventually, in the biblical story, they come to see it, and they come to accept him fully for who he is. And that brings us to the last and, I would say, most important part of this chapter, and I'm going to read it in two chunks for us. So the first chunk is Mark 8, 27 through 30, and it says there, 
And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So, this is good. Way to go, disciples. They're doing a great job. They recognize who Jesus is. They see that he's the Messiah sent from God. He's just not another prophet. But, then we see what happens next. And I want you guys to keep in mind Jesus' warning to beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, and also the metaphor of the blind man who could only see in part as we read this next chunk. So it says, starting in verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So Jesus reveals here that not only is he the Messiah, but he, that he also is going to suffer and he's going to die and he's going to rise from the dead. But Peter and presumably the rest of the disciples with him reject this idea. This isn't what they expected Jesus is supposed to be a Messiah that comes and overthrows the Romans and who brings in an era of peace and independence and prosperity for the Jewish nation. But how could he do that if he dies at the hands of the elders and the chief priests? So the disciples are showing that they ignored Jesus' warning against the leaven of the Pharisees here. They're acting more like the Pharisees than they even realize. They are clinging to their expectations of who the Savior is and they refuse to humbly submit to Jesus and follow him for who he actually is. Which is and Jesus is a savior who brings salvation through death. And Jesus responds to this failure on the disciples' part by teaching the disciples and the crowds what it means to follow him. That to follow Jesus is to take up your cross. That to follow Jesus is to lose your life for his sake and for the sake of the gospel so that you may save your life. And we don't want to be like the Pharisees who pridefully refuse to acknowledge Jesus for who he is unless he's exactly how we want him to be. We don't want to be like the disciples either who only see part of who Jesus is. They recognize that he's the Messiah, but they refuse to accept what kind of Messiah Jesus is, a Messiah that sacrifices himself to save others and asks others to follow him in that. To follow Jesus is both to recognize that he is the Messiah, that he's God, that he was sent to save us from our sins, and it is also to fully submit ourselves to him, to be willing to forsake all worldly things for his sake, so that we may experience Jesus' grace and be restored to relationship with God, and so that we can have eternal life in Jesus. And I want us to stop here and to consider the reality of what Jesus is saying when he is telling people that to follow him is to take up your cross. 
Because I think for us today, the cross doesn't totally mean what it would have meant for Jesus' audience then. Because today we hang crosses around our neck, churches display them in their front lawns. We associate the cross with Jesus' atoning sacrifice for our sake. This makes a lot of sense because the cross is a symbol of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus turned this symbol of shame and suffering into a symbol of grace and glory. So it makes sense that we think of it that way. But for the people that Jesus was talking to in this moment, the cross was just a tool of torture and execution that was used by this oppressive government, and it wasn't anything else. Jesus hadn't yet died on the cross at this point. There was nothing honorable about the cross at this point. So to take up one's cross meant that you're going to be tortured, stripped naked, paraded through the city with a heavy beam across your back, and then shamefully and painfully executed for everyone to see. So Jesus isn't saying some small thing when he says that whoever wants to be his disciple must deny himself and take up their cross and follow him. To do that is to be willing to suffer loss and shame in every single area of our lives. There's nothing that's really safe from that. And I don't say this as like a tactic to scare you or anything like that, but mostly to help you see the reality of what Jesus is saying here. What I want us all to see in addition to that is that it's worth it. Jesus doesn't ask us of this just because he felt like it, but he asks us to be willing to lose everything because his grace and mercy for us is so great. And it's through giving up our lives that we're able to fully experience Jesus' grace and fully experience the life that he offers us. We see in a lot of other places in the Bible, too, that it's through death that we're able to experience life. It says in Romans 6, 5 through 8, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. It says that dying with Christ is how we live with him as well. And this is a reality that I've been able to see really tangibly in my own life, because I think something that I very constantly struggle to surrender to Jesus is my own self-image. I can feel this need to perform and to manage how others see and experience me so that they'll like me and think I'm capable or extraordinary and... I think on the surface, that could seem like a good thing. Being liked and thought highly of is fun, and it's happy and enjoyable. But the reality is that it actually is pretty crippling. It's the sin that's like a cancer inside of me. Because when I'm like that, I'm constantly consumed by these thoughts of what people think, of what I'm doing, or of what I'm saying. And when I do the slightest thing wrong, I experience this immediate anxiety that everyone's going to notice. It'll make them think less of me. Not only that, but I can be tempted to lie about the severity of my sin, or I can want to exaggerate my accomplishments or put others down so that people will view me more favorably in comparison. But when I surrender that to Jesus, and when I lose my self-image for Jesus' sake, I experience life in him. I'm no longer worried about what others think of me because I'm solely concerned with what Jesus thinks of me, and his love for me is unfailing, and I can turn to him. I no longer feel tempted to lie or embellish because there's nothing I can do that can change Jesus' love for me. His grace for me is unending. I don't need to prove anything to him. I can see that Jesus' love and his grace are great, and those things can compel me on to submit to Jesus and to want to follow what he lays out in the Bible for how I should live. 
So my hope for us all is that we can understand that we don't need to project a false image to impress others, that we don't need to obsess over school because your identity is in getting good grades. You don't need to go out and get drunk with your friends so that they'll like you, and you don't need to be afraid to talk about Jesus because you think it might make other people dislike you. We see a great example of this in the Apostle Paul. He was a man who had all kinds of things going for him. He was a part of God's chosen people. He was part of the elite religious class. He was faultless before the law, is something he says. But still, he says this in Philippians 3, 7 through 11. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So we see that Paul is willing to give up all things for the sake of knowing Jesus more fully. And just like Paul, we can give up all the things of the world that we cling to. We can be willing to give up any comforts that we cling to in life. We can give up our self-image. We can give up a desire to control everything around us. We can give up our whole life for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of his gospel. Because the life and love and grace we find in him is greater than we could ever imagine. It actually fits in really well with our church's theme for the year, which is that Jesus is our cornerstone. And this is ultimately what it means for Jesus to be the cornerstone in our lives. It means that we're willing to give up everything else for his sake so that we can follow him and experience fullness of life in him. And all of this tells us something else about what it means to follow Jesus as well. It can show us that Jesus doesn't ask for people that follow him to have everything figured out or to be smart or clever or strong or anything else the world values highly before we start following Jesus. If you look at the disciples in this chapter and honestly throughout the whole book of Mark, they mostly seem confused and incompetent most of the time. But instead, what Jesus is asking is that people would be willing to surrender their lives for his sake. And anyone can do that. There's no, like, you'd have this much talent to do that. Just be willing to surrender your life to Jesus. So here's what I want all of us to consider as we leave here today. And these questions will also be up on the screen. Consider, if you aren't yet a follower of Jesus, would you consider surrendering your life to him so that you can experience his grace, love, and the life that he offers? If you are a follower of Jesus, what areas of your life do you still struggle to surrender to Jesus? And how could surrendering those areas to him help you to experience life in him? And for either of these, I would encourage you to consider talking to believers around you or looking in the Bible for help in overcoming the challenges of surrendering to Jesus. And I recognize that it can be really hard to give up the things of this world. Like, if it was easy, we'd just all do it. But, like, we like to have money, we like to be thought highly of, we like to have the things that we want. But Jesus ultimately calls us to be willing to give up all of these things and more for his sake. And I do want to encourage you guys that it truly is worth it to give up everything so that we can experience life in Jesus. So now I would like to pray for us, and then we're going to transition into the next part of our service. So bow your heads with me. 
Hey, God, I want to thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us through your word and teach us about who you are. Teach us about your character and your plan of salvation for all of us, Lord. I pray that your Holy Spirit will help us to understand you more clearly, to see clearly who Jesus is, understand how amazing and incredible it is to have a relationship with Jesus. I ask that you help us to be willing to surrender the things in our lives that we cling to more than we cling to you, Lord. I pray that you help us to be willing to give up all things in our life so that we may experience life with you, Lord. So, pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.